This is Phantom Power. Episode 12, A Book book Unbound. Tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you Escape. Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Adventure, adventure, adventure. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode. This is Mac Haygood. My partner Chris Cheek is out, so you just got me today. What you just heard is an excerpt from ESC, a fascinating project that's one part podcast, one part audiobook, and it's produced by my guest today, Jacob Smith. Jake is the founder and director of the Master of Arts in Sound Arts and Industries program at Northwestern University where he's also a professor in the Department of Radio, Television, and Film. So for those of you who are regular listeners to the show, you know that um, I work in this interdisciplinary space that gets called Sound Studies. So we have all these folks working in this space of Sound Studies, and yet, how do we publish all of this research that we generate? We publish it in print or in pixels on the screen, right? We do it via the written word. And that's why I was so excited about having Jake Smith on today, because he is challenging that paradigm, working in sound and doing something that really could only be done in sound. His new project, ESC, is an audio native audiobook. So what do I mean by that? So basically, this is a book-length critical reading of a CBS radio drama from the 1940s and 50s called Escape. But instead of just reading about the radio drama, we actually hear the radio drama itself. And through Jake's excellent production techniques, we also hear his criticism and we hear these sounds sort of mashed up against the work of contemporary sound artists. And the sort of through-line argument of the the piece is that this moment in the 40s and 50s after World War II when this radio drama was being produced is also the moment that was sort of the tipping point in the Earth's geological history. It's the moment when human beings start having a larger impact on the Earth's ecology than any other natural force does. So it's an adventurous project And, you know, it required an adventurous editor, um, which Jake was able to find in Mary Francis at the University of Michigan Press. 
So we're going to listen to this interview with Jake about the production, and we're also going to listen to excerpts of the production. And then at the end of this podcast, we'll listen to a nice long chunk of the first episode of ESC. But first, we started off by talking about the iconic theme song for the show. So first of all, I can't take credit for writing the theme song. That's Mazorsky's Night on Bald Mountain. Oh, right. Okay. It's it, it's the theme song to the show Escape. Okay. But when I was doing the proof of concept, so, you know, I'd had these conversations with Mary, like, maybe, maybe it could just be audio. Maybe I could just make this argument in sound. And instead of just having a few clips, maybe I could really weave my discussion into actually like you know kind of listening to the episode and to the story it would be kind of like a dvd commentary yeah but with my commentary just kind of woven into the audio itself and bringing in work by these other amazing sound artists etc so mary was like okay well let just just try it do a proof of concept do one episode and see if it works and at that point you know i totally panicked like (laughs) this could not work at all you know conceptually this might work and so one of the first things i I decided to do was make a theme song and so maybe i could make my own version of the escape theme but again this is the very early stages and i'm thinking this might not work at all that maybe this is a terrible idea but i sat down with my guitar okay i'll learn the song let's see if this will work i have no idea if this will translate into something that i could make but i had this great omen which is i sat down okay let's see and played the theme opening theme from escape and it was a minor (laughs) and if you're a guitar player you know you know this was not e flat minor or (laughs) you know c sharp it was a flat so i could just pick up my guitar and just strum this big open chord and i was like this is going to work. This is going to work <laughs> because I can play this. It's an A minor. Jong jagga, jong jagga. So, um, so it was that. That was the kind of the first moment where I felt like, oh, you know, maybe my embodied skills as a musician intersect here with my scholarly work because uh, I can play an A minor and I can play a version of this theme song. So that was kind of the beginning of the proof of concept working for me. You know, like you, I was a musician and recorded music for many years, playing in bands and touring around in a van and making records, making some really bad music videos. Had to get out of my mind, had to destroy my old life. I lived it too long, I lived it too long. And that it ended up being something that was, you know, kind of disconnected from my academic work. I still wrote about music and sound and voice, but any recording or musical performance that I did was something kind of separate and different. It had its own little 
separate section on my CV. At the end of my CV, there's something like additional professional work and would list all the, you know, kind of musical things I did. But it didn't really live with the other stuff. It wasn't, didn't count as a publication. But so it it ended up being really exciting for me to try to recombine those, to think about how working with sound, sound editing my own vocal performance might be woven back into the spectrum of my academic work. The radio drama series Escape ran on the CBS radio network between 1947 and 1954. Escape was an anthology drama, which meant there was a new original story for each episode. And it's earned a place among the pantheon of shows that are considered to be classics of the golden age of American radio. And so when it came time to to do a new project, what I decided I really wanted to do was to bring eco-criticism into sound studies or to explore how might those things live together. What might sound studies bring to eco-criticism? What might eco-criticism bring to sound studies? And one way that I found that those two things met was around the concept of the Anthropocene. Scientists and environmental critics differ about when the Anthropocene begins, but many see a decisive shift occurring immediately following World War II. At that time, Fallout from nuclear explosions left a mark in the planet's geological strata and a great acceleration in resource extraction, population growth, and energy consumption meant that the world's ecosystems began to change more rapidly and extensively than in any other comparable period in human history. And I was really compelled by the fact that that's also the end of the golden age of American radio drama, when radio was such a vibrant way of telling stories and a powerful narrative media form in American cultural life. So I started to get really interested in, 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 you know, how might I hear the birth of the Anthropocene in this era of Golden Age radio? The Columbia Network takes pleasure in bringing you Suspense. Columbia's parade of outstanding thrillers, produced and directed by William Spear and scored by Bernard Herrmann. The notable melodramas from stage and screen, fiction and radio, presented each week to bring you to the edge of your chair, to keep you in suspense. So I'm listening to lots and lots of Golden Age radio, partly inspired by my colleague Neil Verma's work, partly inspired by this sense that it's a time that's coinciding with the birth of the Anthropocene. But at the same time, I'm listening to all this wonderful work by contemporary sound artists working in the area of field recording, using digital tools to go out into the world, allowing us to listen to the natural world in a really dramatic new way.
And I found myself wanting to create a mashup of those two things. It felt like two very different golden ages of sound work. On the one hand, the studio-based radio drama of the late 40s and early 50s. We offer you escape. And then this beautiful new flowering of field recording by people like Chris Watson, Jana Winderin, Sally Ann McIntyre, Christina Kubich, Peter Cusack. Really inspiring work that was opening my ears to the non-human world. I wanted to bring these two things together. I'd find myself listening to these incredible cinematic field recordings, but then wanting it to turn into a narrative, like the golden age radio shows I was listening to. I awoke late in the afternoon, the sharp hunger picking at me. And then while I was listening to these golden age radio shows, I kept on wanting it to stop for a minute and just immerse me in a space the way the field recordings Some would. wounded thing, evidently a large animal, had thrashed about there in its death fight. So in each episode, I tried to leave a lot of space for sound. Um, to let the work of sound artists speak for itself or to let that kind of interesting mashup of post-war adventure storytelling collide with field recordings to create a very different kind of emotional experience. So I found myself reimagining the argument in all kinds of ways in the process of doing it in sound. And I also found that the emotional element of the argument would come out in all kinds of different ways. You know, it starts to become much more of a, a musical experience. And for me, at least, that meant a more emotional kind of experience. So it was, it just really changed the process of writing for me. Yes, the use of sound to actually open up an idea. And I think it's particularly important, as you said, because it provides that emotional level, but also because it provides time for people to process what they've just heard. Because when you're reading a book, you can look up and God knows I do this all the time. I swear when I read, I think I spend more time looking at the ceiling than at the book. (laughs) You know, which is why I'm such a slow reader, because uh, I, I just get interested in an idea and then I just want to sit there and think about it. Um, and, you know, the podcast, if you're just talking the whole time, you're not providing anyone time to do that, that kind of to make their own contribution to the conversation in their head. Yeah, I think that's that was one of the biggest things I learned in the process of working on ESC was that kind of temporality, very different from writing, where it's just kind of one idea after the other. I really started to feel the places where I needed to slow down and leave some space or bring in sound to give the listener room to, you know, digest or think about an idea. And that was one thing that for me was really beautiful about engaging so closely 
with these golden age radio narratives because those guys really knew what they were doing. Yeah. And the temporality, you know, they're like 30 minute, really tight 30 minute narratives. And at just the moment where you need to catch a breath, there'll be this little beautiful little three second that musical yeah. riff. Will the member who drew the ace of clubs come to my office for his instructions? <laughs> And I ended up using those all the time it throughout ESC because it would be at that point in my analysis where it was like, we need a break. We need to catch our breath. So just the rhythm and the temporality of making an argument in sound felt different and could move more into music or into ambiance. And I really loved those transitions. Yeah, and that's something I really like about your podcast is that those little musical breaks or sonic breaks sometimes you made them sometimes a sound artist made them in the past decade sometimes they come from decades in the past and so there are all these different textures of those pauses which i i find is super rich and sonically just stimulating that's one thing I've really learned from Neil Verma uh, because he's really showed me how one of the exciting things about sound studies now is starting to think across sounds and get a broader sense of the history of audio work. It's kind of only now in some ways that we're able to line up these different traditions of sound art and sound work in a way that, say, filmmakers have been doing for a long time. You know. I think about new Hollywood directors who are constantly making references to classical Hollywood of the 30s, you know, 50s culture in 70s films. We're kind of used to that, that interesting polyphonic dialogue in film culture. And that's one of the things that I wanted to bring to ESC, you know, that it's not just about this podcasting moment, but how can we line up this podcasting moment with exciting things going on in field recording and sound art, but also with this earlier era of sound work that has its own, you know, kind of wonderful nuance. All these things might live together in new kinds of ways. And I think that's one of the things that the emergence of sound studies is helping us to hear. And now, here's more from Jacob Smith's ESC, Sonic Adventure in the Anthropocene. Let's get started with one of the most popular stories told on Escape, which begins like this. Tonight, we escape to a lonely lighthouse off the steaming jungle coast of French Guiana and a nightmare world of terror and violence. As we bring you again in response to hundreds of requests, three skeleton key Starring Vincent Price. This is the opening of Escape's adaptation of Georges Gustave Tudouze's short story, Three Skeleton Key. As you can hear from that reference to hundreds of requests, this was a popular story, and Escape broadcast it on three different occasions in 1949, 
1950, and 1953. Not only was Three Skeleton Key one of the most popular episodes of Escape, but it features some prominent themes that cut across the entire run of the show. In particular, it's one of 70 episodes of Escape that take place along the network of global shipping. This means that more than one-third of Escape's stories took place in a mid-century network of ocean-going ships, ports, and in this case, lighthouses. So, Three Skeleton Key is a representative episode of Escape because it thematizes a global network of travel and trade, but it also depicts the infrastructure of that network in a state of disruption and collapse. In this and the next two episodes of my podcast, we'll be listening to some of Escape's infrastructural adventures. This means I'll be paying attention to the infrastructure in the narrative and to the narrative of the infrastructure, to how sites like lighthouses can be the fictional settings for adventure, as well as features of the environment with their own history. We'll see that this kind of infrastructural disposition is a useful way to help us bring an environmental awareness to these shows. Infrastructure sites can be contact zones between human networks and non-human creatures, and they require that we think about multiple levels of scale, from the personal to the global. We're listening to a recording that was made by the sound artist Alan Lamb. These are sounds made by an abandoned telegraph wire in the Australian outback. By bringing those wires to life, Lamb's work is a great example of how sound art can have an infrastructural disposition. At the start of Three Skeleton Key, we meet Jean, played by Vincent Price. Jean's a member of a three-person crew that maintains the lonely lighthouse described in the opening announcement. Jean sets the scene. Picture this place. A gray tapering cylinder welded by iron rods and concrete to the key itself. A bare black rock, 150 feet long, maybe 40 wide. That's at low tide. At high tide, just the lighthouse rising 110 feet straight up out of the ocean. Set in the base of the light was a watertight bronze door. And in you went. And up. Yes, up and up and round and round. Past the tanks of oil and the coils of rope, casks of wicks, racks of lanterns, sacks of spuds and cartons and cans. And up. And up and up, round and round. Over the light storeroom was the food storeroom, and over the food storeroom was the bunk room where the three of us slept. And over the bunk room... This opening sequence establishes the broadcast as what Nicole Starselsky calls a nodal narrative. That's a story that takes place within the node of an infrastructural network, like this lighthouse. The lighthouse was an essential node in the network of international shipping and Jean explains that his lighthouse exists to warn ships away from dangerous submerged reefs. Lighthouses like Jean's proliferated in the second half of the 19th century with the rise of steam-powered shipping and increased calls for coastal aids to navigation. 
We're listening to the sound of foghorns, a sonic component in this ship-to-shore technological infrastructure. The construction of lighthouses on the bare rock of an exposed coast required sophisticated tools and new engineering techniques, and they were recognized as a stunning technological achievement comparable to the great suspension bridges, railways, and early skyscrapers of the era. France's coastal light technology was considered to be the gold standard at this time, which makes it fitting that Three Skeleton Key is set in a French lighthouse. Moreover, French Guyana had a reputation as an outpost at the edge of the civilized world and was widely considered to be uncolonizable by Europeans, due in part to its dangerous harbors and malarial swamps. That reputation was reinforced when it became a French penal colony in the 1850s. That history is referenced in Tadeusz's story when we learn that the name Three Skeleton Key refers to three convicts who escaped from the penal colony only to die of hunger on the rocks. When they were discovered, all that remained of them was their bones, picked clean by the birds. It's here that we should note that Escape had preferred sites of adventure, and its episodes tended to cluster in particular geographical areas, like the South Sea Islands, South America, Africa, India, and the Caribbean. This is a reminder that the years when Escape was on the air coincide not only with the golden age of radio and the dawn of the Anthropocene, but with the period of decolonization. And whatever else it might be, the show is an archive of sensibilities shaped by Western imperialism, colonial and corporate exploitation, racism, and white male heterosexual fantasy. So listening adventurously to escape will require a post-colonial as well as an eco-critical ear. The French Guyana setting also amplifies the sense that the lighthouse is a network node that's situated precariously within its surrounding environment. And all about it, the churning water, gray-green scum dappled, warm as soup, and swarming with gigantic bat-like devilfish, great violet schools of Portuguese man-o-war, and yes, sharks, the big ones, the 15-footers. And as if this weren't enough, there was a hot, dank, rotten-smelling wind that came at us day and night off the jungle swamps of the mainland. A wind that smelled like death. So, from the perspective of an infrastructural disposition, the opening minutes of Three Skeleton Key signal that this will be a nodal narrative in which strategies of insulation will play a central role. In other words, this is going to be a drama about a struggle to keep the lighthouse separate from its surrounding environment, to stabilize the steady flow of traffic through the global shipping network. That dramatic tension is enacted on the level of the show's sound design. Jean ends his tour of the lighthouse in the gallery where his description of the light is accompanied by shimmering orchestra stabs. And over the living and cooking room was the light. 
She was a beauty, big steel and bronze baby with the sun gleaming through the glass walls all about, bouncing blinding little beams off the big shining reflectors, glittering and refracting through her lenses. The whole gigantic bulk of her balanced like a ballerina on the glistening steel axle of her rotary mechanism. She was a sweetheart of a light. I want to think more about this sound, the clicking of the light's mechanism, so I've looped this section of the broadcast. This is another strategy that I'll be using throughout the podcast to reboot Escape for an era of digital audio. Now that Escape's episodes exist as digital files available online, not only can I mash them up with contemporary sound art, but I can manipulate them zooming in to details that were left in the background of the original broadcast. The sound of the steady, regular clicking of the light in operation is what Roland Barthes might call a rustle, the sound of the good functioning of a machine. It's happy machines that rustle, Bart writes. Like the purr of a well-tuned engine, the clicking of the light provides a reassuring sign of multiple parts in coordinated motion, the smooth working of a complex, integrated mechanical system. The sonic contrast to the light's reassuring rustle arrives in spectacular form when Jean and his co-workers notice a derelict ship heading directly towards the reef. A three-master, a big one, about a half mile off and coming down out of the north-northwest, coming straight for us. You must understand, our light was where it was for a very good reason. Dangerous submerged reefs surrounded us and ships kept clear. But this one, this sailing vessel, was coming straight on. Once the ship gets close enough to observe with binoculars, the men are horrified at what they discover. I had to focus, and then my breath froze in my throat. The decks were swarming with a dark brown carpet that looked like a gigantic fungus, but undulating. And on the masts and yards, the guys and all were hundreds, no thousands, no mi- I don't know, an endless number of enormous rats. The ship crashes against the reef, and the mass of hungry rats encircle and engulf the lighthouse. Look! See them? No. Oh, yes, I do. Up at the other end of the rock. Look at the millions. They smell us. Here they come. Close the door. Can't, can't. It's stuck. Here, let me... Oh, move, you move. Made it. This non-human multitude is a showcase for stunning sound effects. The squealing rats were created in the studio by rubbing wet corks on a sheet of glass. The sound effects of the show were admired by radio professionals as well as audiences, as indicated by this announcement at the end of the episode. Sound effects on Three Skeleton Key, created by Cliff Thorsness and executed today by Mr. Thorsness, Gus Bays, and Jack Sixsmith, have been awarded the best of the year by Radio and Television Life magazine. Later in the show, the chaotic sound of the rats 
is contrasted with the soothing rustle of the machine during a scene in which the animals cover the gallery windows and emit pained screeches when the beam from the rotating light touches them. Light drove them mad as she swung slowly and smoothly about. She blinded them in the fierce stabbing bar of light, moving continually about, ever turning, ever touching, ever moving around and around. And they, twitching and shuddering, eyes flaming when they were struck by the light. The bright light moving and behind on the dark side of the room, so close, so close, I dared not turn my back, but you cannot help turning your back when you're in a room made of glass. On the dark side of the room, you could not see them, but only their eyes. Thousands of points of blank red light, blinking and twinkling like the stars of hell. The dissonant harmony of rustle and squeak is the sonic representation of the tension between infrastructure and environment that structures the story. Remember that one of my goals is to concretize the abstract spaces of Escape's adventures. I've already added some concrete details about the lighthouse to ground it in a history of French colonialism and modern engineering. What might happen if we learned some more concrete details about the rats? Ship's rats, like the ones in the story, are often the example of a worst-case scenario of an invasive species. One famous account of the devastating impact that ship's rats can have on a fragile island ecosystem concerns a small volcanic island northeast of Australia. In June of 1918, a ship called the SS Macambo struck a reef off of Lord Howe Island and rats from the ship scurried ashore, causing an immediate and drastic reduction in bird life on the island. Within three years of the rats' arrival, five species of endemic forest birds had become extinct. In 1921, a resident of the island wrote that just two years earlier, the forests of Lord Howe Island were joyous with the notes of myriad birds, large and small and of many kinds. Two years later, the ravages of the rats had made the call of a bird a rarity, such that the quietness of death reigns where all was melody. Sally Ann McIntyre is a sound artist whose work addresses the issue of extinction. This is the holotype of the Lord Howe swamp hen. Extinct. There are two skins of this bird in existence. One here at the Natural History Museum in Vienna and one in Liverpool at the World Museum. There are also several paintings and some subfossil bones. McIntyre goes to museums and makes recordings of specimens of extinct birds, like this Lord Howe Island swamp hen. The eerie silence of these stuffed birds is a powerful way to draw our attention to the irrevocable loss of extinction. Thank you. 
McIntyre is the kind of ecologically minded sound artist whose field recordings I want to put in conversation with Escape's studio-based adventures. In another work, McIntyre transcribed written accounts of the call of the extinct Huya bird to be played on music boxes. She then played back these ghostly sounds in the bird's original habitat. Recall Bakhtin's example of the abstract spaces of adventure. For a shipwreck, one must have a sea, but which particular sea makes no difference at all. When we listen to adventure, this might be true. It doesn't make much difference if the lighthouse is off the coast of French Guiana, or Africa, or India, or New Zealand. But if we listen adventurously, from the perspective of island ecosystems like Lord Howe Island, then concrete geographical and ecological details about the history of ship's rats, for example, start to make a great deal of difference. And Three Skeleton Key begins to sound in a different way. By telling the story of an isolated island community under siege by a horde of ship's rats, Three Skeleton Key facilitates a mode of adventurous listening from a non-human perspective, placing us in the position of Lord Howe Island's extinct fantails, fly-eaters, and starlings. And that's it for this episode of Phantom Power. To hear ESC in its entirety, head over to the University of Michigan website. The link is in the show notes for this podcast and on our website, where, as always, you can learn more about Phantom Power and find transcripts and links to the things we talked about, and also find previous episodes of our show. It's at phantompod.org. You can also subscribe to our show there or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you'd rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, and you can also find out about us on Facebook and Twitter. Today's show was edited by Craig Ely, with music by Jake Smith's band, The Mysteries of Life, and Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to our intern, Gina Moravec. Phantom Power is produced with support from the Robert H. and Nancy J. Blaney Endowment, the Miami University Humanities Center, and the National Endowment for the Humanities.